I am so thrilled to be releasing this discussion with Dr. Anamel Sorwamimo from Decolonizing Contraception. There were so many things in this conversation that made me stop and think about the way I practice, particularly on the topic of contraception, but beyond that too. To make this episode even more exciting, it is co-hosted by the amazing Dr. Juliana Duodu, who works in Leeds at York Street Practice, which is part of the Bevan Healthcare Social Enterprise. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to another splendid episode of Finding Fair Health podcast. My name is Dr. Julie Drodu and I'm a GP and co-host of today's episode. Regular listeners, don't fear, the lovely Dr. Rachel Steen is still here. Today we are joined by Dr. Annabelle Showawimo, founder and director of Decolonizing Contraception, a community interest group. It was created by people of colour working in sexual and reproductive health and aims to raise awareness about the historical and socioeconomic barriers faced by people accessing sexual and reproductive care. The organisation thinks differently about sexual health and works towards achieving reproductive justice and encourages us all to do the same. In addition, Annabelle is a community sexual and reproductive health registrar, a contributor to galdem.com and Black Ballad, a freelance journalist, trustee of MEDACT, and she sits on the International Affairs Committee for the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health, no less. Finally, a little bird tells me that Annabelle is soon to become a published author. Annabelle, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Really appreciate it and that wonderful introduction. (laughs) So could you please tell the uninitiated about how and why you came to found your organisation? So Decolonising Contraception is a collective, and that word collective is really important to me. So currently myself and Eden are the directors as it's a registered community interest company and that was just for logistical things and so we can carry out our work fully and it was founded as an informal collective about three years ago now and I always say it was born out of frustration really and sometimes frustration and anger as emotions are really useful because they start to get a process moving and working in sexual reproductive health and before that do my master's in sexual reproductive health research I found that often when we look at um, inequalities in this area or think about the field as a whole there was lots of conversations not really being had particularly within the mainstream about the social historical construction of sexual reproductive health how we think about people's sexuality in view of race how providers treat different people whether they assume they're more or less sexual and I was really keen to shine a light on these conversations and not just talk about things although that's really important but also start to think about solutions so we had our first event at SOAS and the university gave us space we had panel discussions and then from that we've moved to more practical work and we're a collective of doctors nurses writers and we work together think of projects draw within our own networks to help facilitate them Um, and that's what we've been doing for the last few years. I love how you stress that it's a collective it's not an individual effort. No absolutely and that's something I'm so passionate about and as much as and I know this is a contentious thing for lots of people as much as I'm a doctor or an academic I'm also an activist and for me what that really means and what's been really important is realizing that I really can't achieve as much as I can collectively 
although I might technically take the lead on something, it's only really deliverable because I lean into other people's expertise or I even require their support emotionally to see something through to the end. So it's definitely been a collective endeavour. That's so interesting, Annabelle. And I think, as Julie says, the collective endeavour is amazing. So the, even just in three years, the fact you've got doctors, nurses, writers, I'm engaged in this is just absolutely brilliant. It's such an important topic. You've explained a little bit already in, in the first question, but decolonise contraception what does that actually need and why is this so important yeah so I think first and foremost understanding decolonizing as a concept it's gained a lot of traction over the last few years not all of it good a lot of people feel quite an affront when you say decolonizing it's a term that's really you know old historians used it to very much discuss the transition of countries following colonization often during the end of the British Empire and it's taken on a meaning that's quite different one of the earliest books written about decolonizing was decolonizing methodologies by T. Smith, who is part Maori academic in Australia. And really that was talking about how communities that are marginalized and have been overlooked historically or not have their voices heard, how we can start to center some of their stories and look at some of their practices and really think about, you know, doing things slightly differently to address social inequalities, health inequalities. And really for me, decolonizing is really about looking at some of the historical aspects that shape the structures that we have now and thinking about how we restructure society and you know make it more even by learning from the past and you know taking what has been useful or what was useful maybe in other cultural cultures or historically has been harmful and think what is good what is bad and how do we make society fairer and it's not just about race it's also about class and gender and all of these things um, have how they've all been shaped into how we see them today. And just because something's been one way before, we don't need to keep doing the same things again and again and again. And in my teaching and in my own research for sexual and reproductive health, that might be how we view the sexualities of some people. So often there's this understanding that black people, and I say that very broadly because obviously blackness is not a monolith, but part of racism is that it makes groups quite homogenous, are hypersexual, and why there has been that tendency to think that way and then when we think about health disparities how people don't really think about the things that lead to health disparities like poverty and inability to access services it's often put on the individual and their sexuality so these are some of the things that we are trying to unpick more widely in medicine it might be thinking about how we even come up with our devices and who they work for. So really recently, something that's really been published about for over a decade, pulse oximeters and how they don't read as accurately on darker skin tones. Now, the first paper on this issue, I think, was published about 15 years ago that highlighted this might be a problem but only in the middle of a respiratory pandemic and actually quite late on in that pandemic because people flag this again at the start of the pandemic. So nearly three years into the pandemic, the British government, one of the first governments to say that, oh, actually we need to have an investigation into this and look at kind of uh, racial bias in medical technology. However, why is it taken so long? And why is it taken 
what is essentially an emergency in respiratory care specifically. So this is what decolonizing is. So when people say that they're objecting to decolonizing and then they go and do something that ultimately is decolonizing work, but um, they have tried to stigmatize um, that movement and some of the work that's come out of the conversations that we're striving for I find quite peculiar but that's what happens when people obviously are, are trying to create issues along quite clear partisan lines it's quite wide reaching isn't it in terms of it, it's not just within contraception it's within medicine it's within wider society so your focus is on contraception has that come about because of your clinical role has that been the driver for what you've kind of seen your patients perhaps experience yeah so the reason we went with decolonizing contraception and now we talk about you know a lot of healthcare and a lot of sexual health when you think about decolonizing particularly in sexual reproductive health one of the most obvious problems is the suspicion around contraception that you get from certain communities and often these are communities that have been targeted by contraception as a means of like population control and that is some of the backstory of how contraception was created the first oral contraceptive pill onavid and was created by trials in puerto rico on poor puerto rican women and very high doses of hormone that would have much higher side effects profiles than the pill that we have today and that's kind of been esponged from the the history of the pill or it's not really discussed and when we see the framing of the pill it's very much one of a liberatory tool that allowed like the swinging 60s and the autonomy of free sex and those kind of things and less risks of unsafe abortion and things like that so I think that I saw a need to address this issue because the framing of contraception was very much like, why would people not want this very liberatory thing, particularly around long acting reversible contraceptive methods, people like, oh, these are much more effective. Why would you not want these? But ultimately, if you're suspicious about healthcare, the role of health pr practitioners, why would you want to use something that ultimately is not under your control it's not user dependent you can't just suddenly decide to take your implant out and that is what makes it effective because you have to have a doctor or a nurse remove it so you can't just you don't just change your mind but then we need to have more conversations around why people don't have the confidence to use those methods and um, that go well beyond just people being irresponsible Annabelle it's interesting because what I can see how the experience is with your patients have kind of flagged this up for you and kind of shone a light on this for you you're seeing patients and talking to patients about contraception sexual and reproductive health all the time since you've kind of realized this how has this changed the way you practice I think it's something I was conscious of when I entered into sexual reproductive health, maybe more so than my counterparts, because I already had these ideas for my own use of contraception and my discussions with kind of my mum or family members about them being suspicious about larks and things. So I probably was more aware than some of my other colleagues initially anyway. However, definitely by you know, being part of decolonizing contraception and leading that work, I also so focused in my own clinical practice of 
making sure that there is clear informed consent and ensuring that people have time during the consultations to make up their own minds, read the information. And we're all acutely aware of time pressures in our jobs. And particularly if you're a long acting reversible contraceptive um, fitter, it can be really tight consultation. You need to take a history and fit the contraception. And sometimes I'm like, actually, I probably say, to more patients I think you need to go away and have a real read about your different options rather than we fit something today because you are really just you know want to get something and then that end up being the wrong option for you like we can bridge you with something else um, and things like that so I think it has made me really try my best to make sure that I do all the basic things in terms of making sure patients calm have had all the access to information if they need a translator making sure that I'm using a translator and doing the basic things to make people be able to maintain their autonomy and decision making I also think it's made me try to better the practice of my colleagues lots of people are already really great but also say actually you know that person's spouse or that person's kid shouldn't be in the room during that consultation it really alters the dynamic so a lot of the conversations we have are about rights and justice and how some people during their consultation are giving more thorough explanations than others because they're expected to understand more but can we actually break down the information better so I do try to stretch myself I think as a result of the discussions but me myself I'm also, like all of my colleagues, beholden to the framework that I work in, right? And I can only do as much as I can within my clinical practice and we're strained by resources and time. And I really do feel sometimes really upset by that. I can't lie. I do find it frustrating. It's really interesting what you said about a person's spouse or children shouldn't be in the room. I'm a a LARP fitter and even just yesterday doing an outreach clinic, I had a, a patient who saw her alone but with the translator but she wouldn't decide on contraception or she felt she couldn't decide on contraception or even for me to physically examine her she came about quite a few gynecological issues without speaking to her husband first which she did and then came back so this is a lady who is from Afghanistan and so obviously it's her autonomy it's her desire that's what she wants to do and the interpreter is explaining that this is very common that you know, that it'd be a shared decision about what happens to um, the, the woman's body in the relationship, trying to reconcile that. Um, and um, how do you, have you, do you come across anything like that in your practice or when, when trying to uh, in, encourage and empower ladies that, you know, they can make the decisions if they want on, on their own? Yeah, so I mean, as part of our work with decolonizing contraception, we mostly during the pandemic, we've done a lot of workshops um, online around raising awareness and trying to collaborate with organisations that reach groups that maybe might not have that sexual reproductive health information or come to it quite late. So one of the workshops we did recently was sexual myth busting alongside a group called Home Girls Unite. And that's the first daughters of immigrant families. And they formed a, a group around that. And very similar narratives I've seen play out in my practice. And one of the things that came up when we organised that workshop is how often people aren't sexually active until they're they're married from some communities. So understanding their bodies and sexualities is all done within the framework of that marriage. And their partner may also have had sex and they may not have because that's not seen as culturally acceptable. And these are things that, you know, 
have been shaped culturally um, since somebody was really young so you can't really come in there as a doctor and say oh no you shouldn't be asking your husband that and the other thing is is that actually within most cultures when it comes to something like sex and you know is actually there is some joint decision making within the relationship because ultimately if you use a device where you're bleeding all the time that will change or affect somewhat the sex that you're having with your partner so it's understandable that some people may have a discussion or you know or at least say to their partner you know this may happen as a result or that kind of thing so I don't think things like that are you know unreasonable to discuss with your partner of course we would like to prevent the patient's autonomy as much as possible I think I have seen these situations most people that are lark fitters will have similar situations I think what is really important is first of all you can't make cultural judgments overnight you also can't impose your own cultural perspective on somebody I think what you can ascertain is what they're discussing with their partner and also helping them to understand some of the things that may happen that could affect the relationship but ultimately you need to be happy because the hormones are going to predominantly affect you and actually if you would rather have an implant for whatever reason than an intrauterine contraceptive then ultimately that should be your choice you're absolutely right and it's um it is that balance you know I was suggesting for one minute that we should be imposing our view but I guess there's that temptation I've been brought up in this country I I know what rights women are expected to have here it might seem that somebody's been restricted in some way but you know there weren't issues of spirit and she did come back like half an hour later because it was an outreach kind of setting came back but then it made me think actually maybe this is why if you're perhaps doing that pre-fit counselling somebody's husband might want to be involved in that conversation over the phone or face-to-face however you're doing it because they want the information as well. Do you see what I mean? Is it just kind of... No, absolutely. And I think what I'm trying to articulate is that a lot of these ideas or cultural differences have been instilled quite young. So we do a lot of work around young people and autonomy and building healthy relationships. And it's a really big ask to have this discussion within the confines of a short appointment. And sometimes you actually might do more harm than good because as you rightly said, the patient might feel judged or you've imposed an opinion on them so I think what is really important is that you need to ascertain that the person does have a degree of autonomy they're not under like coercive control there's not reproductive coercion kind of happening and that kind of thing and then you also need to sow the seeds that ultimately you have to deal with kind of side effects and these are the things that are most important but it might be a series of discussions as you mentioned you might need more than one consultation with some with a patient that also has to deal with kind of a very patriarchal home life and these are some of the subtleties that I don't think are always given the time people get very frustrated oh I was using a translator she didn't understand the system is too constrained to give time to these patients but ultimately really patients that have more cultural needs or even language barriers or have you know hesitancy for example like we've seen a lot of like vaccine hesitancy might be culturally constructed might be religious construct they need more time and those are the patients that actually stand you stand to benefit most if you give them more time and less accidents or complications happen if they give them more time in the initial 
phases it's just really time well spent in my opinion Annabelle I really love that actually because I think I'm guilty of seeing contraception written in as my patient presentation and thinking oh well this will be a quick one and actually (laughs) sometimes it's not you know and actually it's, it's always a sensitive topic and it's always something that we should step back and think actually what culturally is going on here what are the sensitivities going on here what extra things do we have to think about here and actually the system isn't set up to give us a lot of time in that but what's great about your section and reproductive health it sounds like you can give people more time and bring people back but there's a lot of pressure to do the contrary isn't there so it's it's tricky isn't it it's tricky to get that balance there absolutely is and just kind of a final word on this I see it so often and you know especially from people that don't have contraceptive training they're like contraception is so easy like give them some pills bosh an IUCing or just bosh like an implant in and it's really quite simple and I and I'm always thinking to myself you have no idea how many problems you create when you do it ineffectively people come back and they'll say this implant is creating this, you know, my leg to ache, you know, people often somaticize sometimes in relation to their contraception, because the counselling at the beginning was not robust. And it can create long term issues in relation to contraception as well, where people are bouncing between methods and every single method there is a problem with. And it really stems back to the fact that at the initial phases, they were given something that didn't suit them and now they really just feel that they have a sensitivity to hormones and some people do but often it's due to something along the way or something not being explained properly at some stage so yeah I think it should be straightforward in compared to you know something that is practically maybe very difficult like robotic um you know surgery but it's very socially embedded fertility and reproduction is something that's so fundamental to our society so when you alter that a lot of things happen in people's minds that I don't think is given enough time to understand Annabelle, you mentioned an event that you've run with patients, which I think is fascinating that that event was by debunking myths around contraception. Can you give any other examples of patients um, focused events that you behold both like currently and pre-pandemic as well? Yeah, so a lot of our events or things we do are very much in relation to feedback that we receive either emails people send us or through social media or things that our collective encounter in their daily practice so as I mentioned there are doctors and nurses and writers and health advocates and outreach workers that we've all touched base with part of this collective and we've worked together on some of some of the events so one of the events we did I did with my colleague Zainab, who is an ONG registrar, and it was on preconception counselling. And we ran that with Black Ballad, a media platform for Black women. And this was very much in relation to conversations that have been had around higher maternal mortality rates amongst Black women, um, people necessarily not knowing how to advocate for themselves in consultations, not necessarily knowing what to expect before they're pregnant, things that are basic, like what is your cervix? when somebody examines your cervix what are they doing and just building some health literacy which I think is incredibly important I also find that 
when we look at kind of class and socioeconomic factors, often we obviously we know that race and class are highly linked. When we look very much at people that are working class, and I in my consultations, I definitely experienced this, there's less willingness sometimes to question the doctor um, in terms of like paternalism, whereas middle class patients or those that are highly educated will come with a list of questions. They might have even read some guidelines and they'll say, you know, I want this. Um, you were supposed to do an ultrasound. Why didn't this ultrasound happen? And I think sometimes in terms of addressing health inequalities, it's about building that up. And I think we should be happy to be questioned as doctors or provide justifications for our actions, especially if we're not following guidelines. And I think most of my colleagues are happy and trying to explain to patients that you are able to do this, but you can do it also in an informed and pleasant way, um, rather than just being Dr. Google, like there are guidelines and you can come with a list of questions. And if you're not very articulate, you can come with your, your mum and she doesn't need to interrupt the consultation. She can just remind you when you've not asked that thing that you wanted to ask, because some people get into a consultation and they freeze. And I think building some of that health literacy is what a lot of our events that we've done so far we've tried to do more recently we also created a zine called the sex agenda and we distributed that at sexual reproductive health clinics including my own for free it's also available on etsy and the money used goes back into our organization to help fund some of our other work and we're going to do a educational series on the zine based on the articles and some of the things in the zine that came up was you know um, the experiences of trans people on dating apps and facing kind of transphobia and racism on dating apps and how that impacts somebody's like sense of self also it had a prep guide in there so pre-exposure prophylaxis prevention against hiv so that's now available in the nhs and what we found during the trials of that is that despite 80 percent of women accessing hiv clinics in the uk being women of color only about 40 black african women were on the trial out of thousands um, 40, 40. Yeah, four zero. Whereas we've made a lot of headway in gay men understanding, not as many, you know, black and brown gay men, unfortunately, but we've made progress in gay men understanding that PrEP is an option for them. There's been real barriers to the black community, particularly black African community, who do have higher rates of HIV, partly due to migration, but also other factors that we don't really understand about new infections amongst younger people in the UK and things like that. We did that article in the Zine, working with Prepster, and also that's another organisation charity that focuses on this issue. So it's really about trying to put on events and create resources that relate to problems that we see that are ongoing and not taking as long to respond to kind of current needs, because I think there has been a lag over the last few years. We also have 
a podcast that's in two seasons now called The Sex Agenda, where we discuss more of like the political background around sexual reproductive health and news stories. And so we recently had injectable version of an antiretroviral HIV medication license in the UK, which again may have really profound impact for Black communities in particular, where there is sometimes low compliance with medication because of stigma and community stigma and having to take pills every day and not being able to conceal your tablet. So I think what we try to do is respond to ongoing issues and do workshops that we think are topical and that's what we we've been focusing on lately so I think there's been quite a lot of work over the last 12 months and we've also worked with educational institutions um, higher educational institutions universities and researchers as well to try and build up researchers of tomorrow who, because there is a lack of research around health inequalities and why we have them and understanding, you know, um, iatrophobia, so fear of accessing health institutions that is clearly quite pervasive among some groups, particularly racially marginalized groups and trying to get that information and get people to fund that research. So that's also been quite a keen focus for us. So as much as we try to do community work, there's also quite a lot of background work that we do at policy and research level as well. Gosh, Annabelle, you do a lot. That sounds amazing. Really interesting what you just said. It just made me think all about the vaccine stuff, talking about cultural stigmatisation, but also cultural mistrust in health and things like that. So I think that's really interesting. You do so much, Annabelle. And I wonder how do you find the time to do all of this stuff? Yeah, <laughs> a, a big question. Um, first of all, I talk about collective quite a lot, but it is really important because I do have some amazing people like my co-director, Edem, who have been really supportive this year and just great professionally and as a friend. And I think that is really important if you want to be a doctor that has multiple strands. I think having a partner or friends that are very supportive can be really helpful. I also feel that I actually don't think I'm the best with time management. I tend to overbook myself and things like that. But I do think I'm extremely passionate about all the different things that I do do. So decolonizing contraception in the work that we do is really important to me. I think my writing is really important to me. My own research is really important to me. So the motivation to do those things is always there. The other thing, you know, that we're not all great at recognizing, and I'm also quite flawed sometimes at doing this, is honestly saying that actually it's enough now. I'm tired and I need to go and do something else, whether that's go for a run or read a book. And we all talk about self-care and nobody does it really effectively and nor do I, but I do think I do it better than a lot of people when I've done too much, I've done too much and I need a weekend for me. So um yeah, these are these are some of the strategies that I utilize but I don't think there is any one method I think also acknowledging that it was quite okay to be very unproductive for the last two three years because actually managing COVID particularly whilst being in the health service has been just enough to manage for most people 
You say that though, but haven't, haven't you written a book <laughs> this time? And are you happy to, <laughs> to share a little bit? Yes. So I have written a book. I am still working on the book. It's not right. completely finished. It should be out actually in about a year. So beginning of 2023. So yeah. So in my previous answer, I did say that writing is one of my passions and it's also an outlet for me. So like a lot of people, some of the health inequality, particularly as Rachel mentioned, the discussions about vaccine hesitancy, as well as, you know, vaccine nationalism and some parts of the world not having any access to the vaccine, whilst others just don't want to take it. I found some of these conversations really emotionally taxing. There's been quite a lot of human suffering that regardless of, you know, your views, I think a lot of people have really empathized with the amount of human suffering that we've seen you know unnecessary amount of deaths and things like that and I think writing the book for me in many ways as well as being draining because I was discussing you know inequalities and race and classism has also been really cathartic because it allowed me to at least have tangible output for some of the things that have been bothering me and I found so unpleasant during the last couple of years and I've not really known what to do with that frustration because I'm just one doctor in one part of the world and like what can I really do about you know global vaccine inequality I I can't do that much you might feel but then I was like well I can write about it or put some of it um, into this book and at least try and make more people, lay people, and a new generation potential of health professionals at least come to the table with more knowledge than, you know, a lot of us might have had at the beginning of our medical careers. And I think this is something that I am really passionate about, that a lot of us go into medicine, it's a cliche, that don't write in your um, health, your medical statement that you want to go in to help people, (laughs) because it's kind of too basic, right? Um, But I also think that whole conversation relates to a wide issue about how medicine's kind of been depoliticized now, when actually when it was created, it was very, very political in terms of, it was very, it was developed and born out of, you know, um, very wealthy people being able to do medicine for example just because their parents had the resources to for them to go off and do that and all of those kind of things and like now people go into medicine and they don't understand very much about you know actually what it means to shape access to medicine pharmaceutical companies funding drug trials and who gets access to these drugs once the trials are finished um, and the how the tariffs are set and things like that. So the book touches upon some of those issues. It was a really good outlet for those conversations. And I feel like hopefully it will allow a new generation of young people to have a bit more insight into some of these problems at the start of their, their careers. Fantastic, look forward to it. So yeah, keep us posted. yeah definitely keep us posted Annabelle because we'd love to read that and we've talked a lot in previous episodes on this podcast already around the role of the GP as an advocate and the health professional generally as an advocate and I think that's really important and a lot of the work you're doing is advocacy work really Um, and I think that's brilliant
Absolutely. Um, and a few years ago now, I gave a talk at the British Association of HIV conference called We Should All Be Advocates. And it's definitely something that I think I'm exceptionally passionate about, but I think more and more healthcare professionals need to understand because that idea that we can kind of be removed from the wider kind of social structures and political structures around us and just go to work and do our job you know eventually falls apart at some stage you know you see a patient where you really want to to treat them or they really need that drug but suddenly there's no funding and it's just that one patient and what happens about about around all the others or you know there's a patient that comes to surgery that clearly need better housing and they want you to write a letter as a GP about their housing and I know you you uh, you as GPs will see similar things all the time and you write them a letter but what about all the others that you don't write letters for and you know that letter won't really do anything because we're you know got a housing crisis with so much shortage of good quality social housing so as much as you know we enter into the profession and I entered into the profession you know from a quite a nice affluent background my dad is also a GP and as much as I have been exposed to a lot of health inequalities and poverty. I have family that live globally. I also, you know, have family that live in lots of different circumstances in the UK. I don't think it had quite registered in my mind, you know, that as a doctor, you have so much power and bearing over the circumstances of other people's kind of lives and people turn to us for sick notes they turn to us for these housing notes and we've been afforded quite a lot of this power and actually we can do a lot more about these issues than simply write somebody a sick note you know we can actually say that hold on a second that should we actually be providing leave for people that have you know miscarriages should we be advocating for more of a holistic approach to these kind of medical outcomes right rather than just handing them the sick note what about all these other people that are suffering this issue and um you know there's silence around so I feel like yeah advocacy is a huge thing for me and under for health professionals to re-examine their role as as an advocate is really important not everyone has that capability or that energy or that interest but at least understanding that is something that your colleagues or other people should or want to do and also not judging people harshly that choose to because I do think that's also an issue within medicine that if you do choose to do those things that sometimes your colleagues can say that you're stepping outside the confines of what medicine is about and you should just treat the patient but actually I I disagree no I agree but I think things seem to be shifting I think opinions are shifting I think there's a mixture of some people who are feeling quite disempowered and disillusioned in their their role so they may have maybe started out being more of an advocate and then kind of the passage of time has kind of um, worn that away but then I think being involved with the child basis scheme, having an interest in addressing health inequalities, more aware of people who are like-minded and, and want to use their, the position that they're in for a greater good and also can see how that's tangible, especially with things that how things are changing within the structure of primary care. The example you gave about writing letters for poor housing, and in theory, 
collectors of general practices in the primary care networks could have more clout in addressing just that to say, you know, we're not going to have individual doctors writing about letters for certain people, but if there's a certain street or area that needs addressing working collectively with people in um, health, uh, social care uh, and, and the, the council and local government, you might be able to bring about change that way. So I, th I think there are seeds of winds of change in some areas. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and that was partly my motivation for trying to write the book now, because I think with COVID, I think even those people that tried to say, I'm just gonna go to work and just do my clinical role, mm -hmm. you know, started to see some of their other colleagues going in to do home visits in bin liners with no PPE and saw some of these other kind of failings and realized that actually we really do need to be really vocal about our working circumstances and advocate for our patients and those that don't have a voice. You know, very early on, my friends that work in medicine and re medical registrars, anaesthetists said very early on, a lot of them were in London by the first waves of the pandemic were happening one of my good friends was actually at one of the hospitals as an infectious disease registrar and said you know all the people that we're seeing at the moment are pretty much black and Asian you know and that was before anybody was talking about the racial disparities in COVID and you know had they not started talking to their colleagues really early on and saying that what is happening here, you know, it might have taken really even longer for this narrative to be picked up on. Um, and that's our role, you know, we have to advocate and articulate for people that can't get certain stories or information out into the public domain. And I do think the tides are changing. I also am really hopeful, and I've done work recently on various panels with some great activists and academics. I also do feel that there'll be more work soon from communities from the global south, which will highlight some of the issues that we have today in like global health inequality. So when we're talking about vaccines, you know, what it means, for example, for India to be having a crisis and not have access to oxygen with COVID-19, but at the same time, they were one of the biggest exporters of vaccine and then had to stop supporting vaccine supplies to other parts of the world. They were exporting huge amounts of vaccine also to parts of like southern Africa and things like that whilst we here were kind of hoarding vaccine and I'm really excited that I think the tides are changing and those things that wouldn't have had space to be discussed I'm hoping that we'll see some really great work from people over the next few years to give a voice to those those stories and those issues as well. Well Annabelle I could speak to you about this all day <laughs> it's, just, it's fascinating and um, as you say that what's happening still is this put a much needed microscope and, and attention on these wider global issues and hopefully we'll learn the lessons we need to move in the right direction but we've come to the point in the podcast where we ask um, a couple of questions actually to uh, our guests the first one is could you name a book or resource that you'd recommend to somebody interested in tackling health inequalities yeah I mean there's so many great books out there some of them are quite academic but some favorites so 
um, Dorothy Roberts, who's a US academic, wrote Fatal Invention in about 2011. And that very much talks about the restructuring of race science post the discovery of the human genome, and also how that kind of pans onto health inequalities and how we address them. And I think it's very enlightening for anybody that wants kind of an entry level into that kind of topic. And it's quite an easy read. Also, if you're thinking much more about the UK context of health inequalities, then Michael Marmot's Health Gap is really great. Also, um, that talks about health inequalities in the UK, um, how he embarked upon his work um, within public health and addressing health inequalities and very much also shines a light on how class um, impacts health in the UK and was one of the earliest kind of academics to start really looking at that work um, here. Also really like The Hop um, of the Race, um, which is a great book um, written in the 70s, but I don't really feel like there's been a comprehensive book um, like it since. It's not health specific, but it really does talk um, a lot about the experiences of Black women accessing NHS care in the 50s and the 60s, particularly amongst those who were, you know, encouraged to migrate here to support the NHS, but then also struggled to get adequate health care themselves. Um, and it works kind of as a qualitative analysis. So there's lots of quotes in there from those women that were working as kind of nurses and nursing auxiliaries, as well as others um, at the time accessing care. So those are just three of some of the amazing books that um, have really shaped and helped helped me in my in my work. Thanks, Annabelle. I love a good book recommendation. All of those are great. So thank you. The last one we always ask um, Annabelle, if you don't mind, is our magic genie wish question. So if you had a magic genie and you have one wish from the genie to try and tackle health inequalities, what would that one wish be? Um, so it would be about universalizing access to healthcare because ultimately that's really one of the keys to addressing health inequality. And one of the things that I've written about it in one of my Galvan articles that had a really profound effect on me was when I was working as um, a junior doctor in one of the central London hospitals and I had a renal job and there was a young woman that came with renal failure and all the kind of symptoms of end-stage renal failure, had fluid on the chest, had been itching a really long time and things like that. And they were a migrant here and had not wanted to seek care because they were worried about their status and being deported. So they had to have emergency dialysis that we arranged that night. And they were quite young. I'm sorry, I'm getting quite emotional thinking about it. Sorry. It's all right, Annabelle. Please take your time. Sorry. Yeah, so I remember getting a translator to um, speak, speak to her during the night. And she'd not come in because she was worried about her immigration status and being deported. And she had emergency dialysis, but ultimately she was, her kidneys were finished and she would need a kidney transplant. And it made me think that, you know, if she had been less frightened about deportation, that 
she would still maybe have functioning kidneys and or we would have been able to prolong her kidney function with medication and I don't know what happened to her long term but I just felt that was really awful so I think when we think about health inequalities particularly we're very blessed in the UK to have the NHS and I think by and large it does avert a lot of stories like this because these stories are much more common in places like the US where you have insurance-based health system people don't come to hospital until their their condition is life-threatening and often when a condition is life-threatening obviously the damage may have been done maybe have been done to several other organs um, so I think something that we have to really improve and also preserve is um, universal access and removing as many barriers in the first place. And I don't really think it's the argument to be had. I think there should be a level of, you know, human compassion and things like that. But often, um, as this story demonstrates, I think people think that they're averting spending, but eventually often the spending ends up worse actually I believe in the long term because people come with much serious medical issues in the end and it might have been relatively straightforward at the beginning. Thank you Annabelle for sharing that that's obviously been a very difficult <laughs> patient experience to recall but I do appreciate you sharing it and when you said universal access you think we are if you're eligible in this country you you, you know you, you do have that but if you're not you, you kind of push to the, the, the margins underground and these things do sadly still occur and the argument against universal access has been around since the inception of the um, NHS of health tourism the concern about it from uh, I think the opposing conservative government of the day people still use that as a, as a reason why not to do it and it's just such a shame that we haven't got enough evidence or there is evidence but there isn't enough kind of will to overcome that and in some ways it's getting worse. Yeah, I think a lot of people draw on Annie Bevan still and, and and lots of quotes on why the NHS is still still so vital. And I know a lot of people are can be callous, a lot of people are callous, a lot of people are compassionate, but I think those that are, you know, are really against universal access or want a paid for system and things like that. I think it's really easy to advocate for those things when you're not engaged in patient-facing care or even you don't have to make that decision or look at that patient or engage with that patient. And I think these are some of the things that people also try and do. They try to not make doctors make that decision but have somebody at front desk that does that decision before they have to really know the realities of that person's life because most people once you're faced with a level of humanity and human a human face and empathy would not be able to deny somebody life-saving treatment and would never be that cruel and I think ultimately that is something that I think we need to keep highlighting that you know people are ultimately people and to have to look at somebody in the face and tell them that you cannot do something that is life-saving that you could do for anyone else is extremely hard to do and I think the people that don't want these things should 
do it themselves because I don't want to do it. Gosh, thank you, Annabelle. That's such a powerful story and example that really highlights that so well. So thank you. And thank you for your time today. It's been absolutely brilliant having you on the podcast and hearing from you. You do amazing things and please carry on doing everything you're doing, but also look after yourself, as you say, um, continue to try and do that well. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Further podcast episodes, modules, blog posts and more educational resources are available on the Fair Health website at www.fairhealth.org.uk. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe so you're updated when we release more episodes. It's always lovely to hear from you and thank you for all the comments and feedback we've had about the podcast over the last few years. Please get in touch via Twitter at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. We're really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.